listeners, and welcome to the show. This is episode six of Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest today is Greg Fried, who has been listening to and writing about opera for 30 years. He was a reviewer in New York and San Francisco for the legendary queer opera blog Parterre Box. His opera education has consisted of Saturday afternoon radio broadcasts from the Met in New York City, bickering on terrible internet forums, 182 nights in matinees at the Met, and many more in Houston, San Francisco, Chicago, and Cincinnati, approximately one trillion records from the dollar bin, and above all else, quote, finding my tribe of fanatics in Austin who loved opera with just the right mix of adoration and mockery. Opera is big, it's ludicrous, it's unbelievable, it's also affecting and beautiful and will make you cry. It's a mega operation that combines drama, music, stagecraft, literature, class distinctions, gatekeeping, and social anxiety. If you, like me, have been looking for a way into opera, this episode will give you some history, some things to listen for, and some excellent stories. Opera. (laughs) Opera is an art form dating back to about the turn of the 1500s to the 1600s that is sung drama essentially some people think that there is earlier opera some people think that greek drama had melody but what what we know as opera now dates back pretty much to like 1598 and even that part of the literature is not done a lot and more of what we think of as opera is from the baroque on up to now and where is this happening The stuff around 1598 happened in Italy. The first operas are by Jacopo Perry, or I suppose it's Jacopo Perry. Um, The the sort of first opera of record is called Daphne and does not exist anymore. The ones from around then do exist, but as with a lot of early music, they are in notation. That means that we don't know terrifically well how they were performed and what they sound like. And when you hear a recording of them now, it is reconstructed through a lot of scholarship and it may or may not be what people heard at the time. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so early notation left out a lot of stuff that we would. Yeah. It's required to actually perform. Yeah. I'm not a scholar of early music, but my understanding is that early notation left out specifically things like orchestration so that in Monteverdi, for instance, which is 16th century, um, but not quite as early, you can see a lot of melodic lines and figured bass and things like that, but it's not always clear what was happening. So from recording to recording, things may sound different. And in fact, earlier in the recording era, say the first half of the 20th century, you'll hear things that to someone today sound very informed by the aesthetics of the time. So they'll be like with a full orchestra, like a romantic orchestra. Um, and I'm going to be, I think, using the conventional names of the musical periods, which some people think is not great, but it's sort of how I know things. <clears throat> a sketchy overview. Our period of interest starts at the tail end of the Renaissance, which ended around 1600. The Renaissance was generally big on choral music, lots of stringed instruments, the invention of the violin. There was still a lot of church music, as in the medieval era, but an increase in secular music like this William Byrd piece we're listening to. Renaissance Europe really got into polyphony, multiple singers or instruments making different notes simultaneously, aka harmony. (laughs) 
In the subsequent Baroque period, 1600 to 1730-ish, individual pieces of music got very complex. There were lots of multi-part works. There were forms where multiple leading voices overlapped and intersected, like in the Bach fugue that we're listening to, and lots of intricate melodic lines with complex ornamentation. This era saw a lot of keyboard music for the organ, the harpsichord, the newly invented piano, and the orchestra was born, at that time about 25 players. Next up, the classical period, 1730 to 1830-ish. This name is also used to cover the entire style of music called classical, and indeed many of the canonical composers are from this period. We're listening to Mozart's 40th Symphony. Musically, it saw a move toward relative simplicity and texture. It was an era when a lot of Western European art forms were really into classical Greece. Long white dresses, columns on everything, and their idea was that everything had been simpler then. Mathematical, elegant, pure, free of decoration and fuss. The orchestra is at about 60 players. The Romantic period began in about 1820, overlapping a little with the Classical period. You can actually hear the world getting more modern if you listen chronologically to the works of someone like Beethoven, who began composing in the Classical period and sort of helped invent Romanticism. The Romantics were less about math and structure and more about drama and emotion. The orchestra continued to balloon to as many as 120 players, and there's a new popular access to the music. The concert hall begins to replace palaces and churches as the primary performance venue. And to bring us up to date, I'm sure you'll be surprised to know that the 20th century began around 1900, and sort of continues today. 20th century classical music is often shorthand for difficult listening. Atonal, minimal, dissonant, not as much of an emphasis on beauty, sounds that come from things that aren't even instruments, and there is some of all of that, this here is Schoenberg, but there's also an enormous diversity of other styles, and people are still playing and sometimes even composing in historical modes from other eras. The cohesion of current classical music, such as it is, is probably more cultural than sonic. The same performance and educational infrastructure tends to support, for example, Renaissance lutenists and contemporary piano, and it's a different infrastructure than that of pop music, broadly speaking. So there are like, there are recordings of early opera from let's say the thirties through the seventies or something that may have like the full orchestra that you would hear with a big 19th century Italian opera, what we think of now mostly as opera. If you're more accustomed to what happened later on when people really dug into it, scholars really dug into it and decided that things should sound a certain way, it sounds 
different and to a lot of people bad and maybe ridiculous, but also I think sometimes really interesting. Some of those old recordings are, you know, they're a glance into the time that they were recorded in a way. So it's a bit like movies set in a historical period where like in the seventies, perhaps, or the late sixties, you would look at the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet and it might look like it was in 14th century Italy. And now it really looks like the seventies. Yeah. (laughs) There's a bar in Manhattan that's supposed to be sort of like a speakeasy where you ring the bell and they let you in. And um, my friend that I went went with there said, this place reminds me of a decade and that decade is the seventies. Like sometimes, (laughs) sometimes the mock-up doesn't quite work. And sometimes you get more of a a glimpse of the, the people that are doing the thing than when it was originally written. Yeah. And I will say that the recordings that were made in like the 90s of early music. I think they really tried to be accurate about how things sounded at the time. They got much better at playing period instruments instead of modern instruments. But they also, a lot of them sound to me kind of like someone doing math homework. Like they are often sort of airless and kind of homogenized and too devoid of any interpretation. And I think in another you know, 20 years, or maybe now, those recordings will also sound very dated. Mm. You know, the way that they play their instruments is accomplished. It's good that people learned to play the the theorbo or something instead of just, well, let's give that part to a piano or (laughs) something. Um, But it'll be of its time as everything eventually is of its time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about orchestration. So we have singers. What's 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 making what's making the sound? The rest of it. Well, it depends on the era that the opera is written in. And that ends up having a lot to do with what is required of singers in that era. So like Baroque opera, those are small orchestras of strings and a harpsichord and some winds, but not not sort of a full complement of things like you would hear in something from 1850. And accordingly, and because those were probably produced in small spaces, the art of singing at that time is not as much one of being heard. As orchestras get bigger, part of the thrill of what you're listening to is that people can make themselves heard over an orchestra with, I don't know the numbers, but the, or- the, the orchestras in the Romantic period or the early 20th century, they were huge and they were um, loud in a way that uh, you or I could probably not make ourselves heard over. It's a real like athletic thing where you develop this skill of projecting your voice vastly. You know, 17th century opera, not like that. There's more, I think there's more of an art of finesse in the singing then. The the lines tend to be florid. (laughs) ¶¶ 
I'll mention here that in the extended show notes at everyrecordeverrecorded.com, there's a YouTube playlist that includes the full version of all the pieces we're listening to, and some of them have videos of the performance as well. This staging involves frock coats, alarming eyebrows, self-wig snatching, and a bucket of glitter. We skipped forward to the end of this aria to get to the really lacy bits. That is fabulous. <laughs> yeah. I, I stumbled upon this on the internet, but I think it's kind of a wonderful, wonderful example of a lot of things. So we listened to Franca Fagioli, who is a current young kind of superstar countertenor. And by countertenor, I should say we mean a falsettist, a man who sings in a range that to modern audiences sounds female. And frequently they are singing... They're singing parts that were written for castrati or singers who were castrated when they were young, so they would preserve their um, high voices. If you are a classical music noob who's saying what the what right now, let me explain. Yes, it is unconscionable to remove the testicles of prepubescent children to preserve the high pitch of their voices, and no, it's not a thing in 2020. The era of the castrati was approximately the mid-1500s to the late 1800s, and intentionally castrating children was often frowned upon then, too, although that didn't stop some high-stakes stage parents from having it done covertly, claiming their offspring had been accidentally maimed, perhaps by a horse or a wild pig, and enrolling them in church choirs in the Vatican, which did not officially ban castrati in its choirs until the year of our Lord 1903. The whole story of Castrati is fascinating in many ways, and you can check the show notes for links, including early 1900s wax recordings of one of the last surviving Castrati, Alessandro Moreschi, a notable overlap between the Renaissance and the recording era. And the Castrati, it's sort of a cliche to say, but they were superstars. They were like, you know, star athletes or something. And there were famous rivalries between them, and it was a whole thing. So this is Franca Fagioli singing an aria that I believe is called Vascalando and Marc Rudel. It's not sort of mainstream repertory, but it's a good typical example where he's singing music that is extremely florid. It goes up to, I didn't blow the pipe on him, but I assume that's like uh, maybe a high A or something, which would be high for, you know, a mezzo-soprano. And it's a real feat to be able to sing it in your falsetto range. 
and it has all these fast scales. It has trills or you know rapid uh, rapid alternations between two notes, which also are easy to play on a violin, not easy to sing in a way that is recognizable as a trill. And one thing that's really virtuosic about this kind of music is that it's often in an ABA form where you sing a verse of it, and then you sing another section that contrasts, and then you sing a repeat of the first the first part of it, but you are improvising ornaments as you go along. Um, if you're a real Baroque singer, uh, a real virtuoso of this kind of music, you may sound completely different from one night to the next because you're throwing in like a little bit of a scale here or a high note here. And I guess maybe it's cheesy to think of it like jazz improvisation, but it definitely is that same kind of show of how well you can manage this kind of music. And so he does a lot of that through this performance. It's a good example of music of that period because the art here is not, I can make my voice heard over a massive orchestra. And I think to some extent, it's fair to say that it's not, it's not a dramatic display in the way that some later opera is because it's very hard to do things with the words when you are repeating the same lines over and over again and ornamenting them to the point that the words may not be very recognizable. So it really is about virtuosity and it's about being able to make something beautiful and unexpected of music that the parts of it may be quite simple and you're making them into this whole sort of firework display. So in terms of musical drama, this this is not the part of the piece that's actually moving the plot forward. No, probably not. Between things like this, there would be recit, uh, recitativo, that is dramatic exposition set to a sparse accompaniment of maybe a um, harpsichord and a viola da gamba, or sometimes just a harpsichord. And that's where you get to move the plot along and where the sentences just go one after another. And then the drama most of the time kind of pauses when you come to an aria like this. The aria is one person? An aria is one person, yeah. Baroque doesn't have as many ensembles as later opera. There certainly there are duets. There's actually, there's a famous moment, and I think um, they talk a lot about it in Amadeus, where in The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart creates a large ensemble by having one person come in and then the plot brings another person in and then the plot brings another person in until you have quite a lot of people singing. But, but that was, I think, probably kind of a new, a new thing in opera at that point. The next thing that I queued up an example of is actually from Mozart, um, not from The Marriage of Figaro. It's from Cosi Fan Tutte, which is slightly less often performed, but still, you know, standard rep. And with the caveat that, again, time periods like classical to refer to a period of music don't necessarily tell a very thorough story, I do think in a way it's useful to think of Mozart as a classical composer because there are there is a move to simplicity relative to the earlier music. So I'll play a very simple and affecting aria. Um, It's something that allows you to experience not the virtuosity of the music, but just the simply expressed feeling of it. And the art of singing it again, it's very different. Singers actually are 
at least they say they are kind of afraid of Mozart. Like they'd rather sometimes sing complicated things. And also they rely on Mozart to keep their singing clean or honest or something like that. Because there's, as I think I've heard many singers say, there's nowhere to hide. The orchestrations are not as flashy. There is, in most periods of performing Mozart, there's not a lot of ornamentation at all. Sometimes you'll hear it, um, but for the most part, not. And this is Lawrence Brownlee, a wonderful tenor of the now, uh, singing Una Ora Amorosa.
That's really lovely. Yeah, I'm very fond of that. So, you know, it's a different it's a different beast. Much different. This is not to say that there's nothing in Mozart that requires you to be sort of athletic about things. If people know an opera aria, they might know the aria for the Queen of the Night, where she has to sing all these staccato high Fs and stuff like that. It happens, but I think it's fair to say during this period, this, this aria, for example, it doesn't go very high. I can almost sing it, and I'm a not very good baritone. It um, just requires a kind of poise, and I think a real kind of sincerity, and not a lot of flash. Mm-hmm. Also, this is not to say that like the florid stuff had gone away permanently. There's also a long period before like Big Blood and Thunder romantic opera in the 19th century where people are still singing in this style that you'll hear people sort of pretentiously refer to as bel canto if they want to be mm. a little bit hoity-toity about things. <laughs> um, Why is that hoity-toity to refer to it that way? Opera queens throw in, I'll say opera fans throw in Italian when they want to make sure that only some people understand what they're saying. Oh, oh, <laughs> and bel canto means? Uh, it means good singing, uh, beautiful singing. Oh, um, <laughs> complicated. It Definitely is, can't be expressed without Italian. It is more... It is more um, specific than that, but the literal meaning of it is beautiful singing. And more specifically, it tends to refer to um, a technique that will let you sing florid long lines. Mm. And that applies to Handel, but it also applies to things from uh, Rossini and Bellini and Donizetti that um, are pretty solidly romantic and much more dramatic. I'm going to play the end of a thing because it's long and not the most gratifying all of it, but it's just like a crazy example of the Florida stuff from the Rossini era. And this is going to be Rockwell Blake singing an aria from a minor opera um, that was just a showpiece that he did on galas and stuff, though I think he did sing the opera as well. Oh, my God. 
That last note was amazing. It's like 13 seconds long. Wow. It excites me every time I play it, especially playing it for someone that hasn't heard it. But I just find it to be like uh, exciting in the way that the best singing is. And he has an ugly voice. I think it's fair to say. I think a lot of people would say Rockwell Blake did not have a pretty voice, but he does this thing that you can do if you are extraordinarily skilled where... It doesn't matter Mm. um, because he's able to do these things like sing a long note with a diminuendo in the middle. And it's I'm not sure if it's a C. It's something high. And there's a diminuendo where it gets soft in the middle and then goes back to full voice. And I think the whole thing is 13 seconds long, which is just it's ridiculous. It's not it's not a thing that I can imagine being able to do. Yeah, it's a good example of the things that people do to really show off in this kind of music from this period. Um, it is, again, I would say, it's the, it's the kind of material where the music is not really entirely at the service of the drama. Like, what he's doing there is just, like, it's fireworks. It's um, It's a thing that you do because the audience is going to scream at the end. It's not really related to opera as a a, a great drama. I will now play, (laughs) by (laughs) contrast, something from more or less the same period where it's also a lot of it is floored music. But this scene in particular, especially as interpreted by Leila Genger and Shirley Verrett, is just unbelievably melodramatic. You can hear the audience going crazy in the middle, as anyone would. It is from Maria Stuarda, which is from Schiller's play about Mary Stewart. It has a scene in the middle of it that is probably completely fictional where Mary Stewart and Elizabeth met, which they probably didn't. And they have kind of a dramatic showdown.
converted a friend of mine who did not like this period of opera to liking this period of opera through this recording. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> that's really cool. And another thing that this gives you a glimpse into, to go on a little sort of tangent, is that part of the thrill of listening to opera is finding hard-to-find recordings. Mm. This is no longer hard-to-find. In fact, now very few things are because of the internet. But... The soprano, Leila Genger, is called the Queen of the Pirates because there are maybe two LPs worth of studio recordings of her, and the rest of it was people sneaking, um, I guess, reel-to-reels in mm-hmm. under their coats into an opera house or some version of that. So the rest of the recordings of her largely are not professional recordings, and you kind of had to know who to ask to get them for a long time. And it gives them, I think, an extra aura of specialness of some kind. But meanwhile, this recording, no matter what it was, I think would be cherished just because she does the extra thing, which is going beyond bel canto into realizing when you can make that even better by sometimes making ugly sounds. She had an amazing voice, and she sang sort of rough on it. And at the time of this recording, which is probably from 1957 or something, she can still do things like you hear at the end, popping out with what's probably high D or D flat. The soprano range, just for sort of normal range, ends at C. Someone in a chorus as a soprano might be expected to sing an A below that. And then there are these these notes that pop out of the score, like the high note you hear at the end here, that are like an extra feat. So she could still do stuff like that. But meanwhile, she does all these kind of guttural attacks and all these sort of half-spoken stuff right at the beginning of it that, especially in a line that is otherwise beautiful, is quite thrilling to opera audiences. And you can hear people applauding in what's the middle of a scene there because it's just so great. Yeah. What is what is she talking about in this song? It almost sounds like two different people, but it's not. Oh, the no, it is. is. Oh, it is two different people. It is, yes. Okay. Um, it's Lola Genger and Shirley Verrett, and it is the confrontation between Mary Stewart, who is imprisoned at Fotheringale Castle, Mary Queen of Scots, that is, and Elizabeth. And she is saying impure 
daughter of of Anne Boleyn. The beginning of the of the um, section here begins with her saying "Filia impura di Bolena," and she goes on and she says, "The throne of England is profaned by I think the the touch of your foot." And at that point, that's when she says she kind of barks it out in like a chesty voice, um, and the audience kind of loses their shit because um, <laughs> uh, it's it's you know for for what it is for opera, it's really raw. And then at the end, they lose their shit again because having sung this very dramatic thing, she still is able to do this act of bel canto and sing a long note that is in a difficult range and you hear on the recording it sort of sounds amplified because the violins are trilling along with her so it sounds unearthly loud which it probably wasn't but the whole effect is just it's very exciting let's talk about audience participation this (laughs) is this this there they are yeah you know there's a certain amount of decorum i think that's associated with classical music and things that you see in opera houses and whatever Obviously, there are some times when it's okay to make noise in the opera house. And has it always sort of been this way? You know, that is not as rigid as I think people are afraid that it is. There definitely are times during a performance when, in the context of now, in an American opera house or symphony hall, you would clap or yell or whatever in times when you wouldn't. But it hasn't always been so, and it's not the same everywhere. Some of the recordings that I am playing, I think, are from Italian houses where the audiences are much more feel much more free to speak their minds in good ways and bad ways. You'll hear recordings from La Scala where people will be booed vociferously. And you'll also hear people burst into applause in what's kind of the middle of a scene and where most of the time American audiences would not do it, which is not all for the good. Like it, it's exciting when it happens, but I think it really is shame in a way because people think of opera now as forbidding and elitist and not something that they can go to. And part of that I think is because they know that there are these kind of rules and that people can be snotty about them. Um, If you, go to the Met or anywhere and applaud at the wrong time, someone might give you a dirty look. And that's, you know, kind of dumb. It's a great experience to go to a performance that people like enough that they seem to slightly lose control. And I find that listening to recordings where there is applause is also a much more real experience than listening to things that were recorded in the studio um, with no noise at all. People really value a studio recording because it's kind of a document. You can have like everything perfect, but live recordings you get imperfections that sometimes are bad and sometimes they are interesting. Here's one thing I'll play you where it's not exciting because there's a screw up It's exciting because there is almost a screw-up. The tenor is Franca Corelli. He was an extremely beloved singer, one of my very favorites. And, you know, he sang kind of rough and ready. Things don't sound perfect a lot of the time from him. And here, right at the very end, you can hear him shift gears. He goes for a high note, and it sounds like either hasn't decided how much of a high note he's going to do, or he misses it a little bit, and then he rescues it. And again, people sort of um, go apeshit over it. Oh! 
you hear the part I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't really know what's going on there. You know, maybe that's how he planned it. I think he was kind of a spontaneous singer. He notoriously had terrible stage fright. Things don't always go 100% right with him, but he really is one of the most exciting singers to listen to. What's that from? Oh, that's from Poluto, which is also done at SETI. It is not often performed. What era is that? Um, that's 18... What, 1840s? Let me look it up because I don't. Yeah, 1840. April 10th, 1840 is the first performance. Mm. Donatetti and Bellini are, are that sort of second bel canto era. Yeah, that's a. I, I'm interested in the idea of him being an exciting singer because he's imperfect and because he's just kind of going for it. Yeah. I As I say, they make plenty of studio recordings where they do take out all the imperfections and where they can have someone correct a high note. On an opera studio recording, no one's going to do it with autotune, but you can go back in and I can play you a funny example where there is an extremely audible splice. Um, it's actually a great recording otherwise, and it's not from a real opera that exists. It is from oh. an opera that exists within a movie.
a fun example of what the studio can and can't do. Mm. The splice is extremely, extremely obvious. Kirito Kanawa is a wonderful singer and not a high D kind of singer. At some point, she went into the studio and managed to sing a D that they spliced into the recording. <laughs> and you can really hear that it's like, you know, tape basically scotch taped together. Yeah. To me, it's a fun example also just because it is from an opera that doesn't exist. It is from the score to um, Susan Cain within the, the movie. Kane's wife, Susan Alexander Kane, is a more or less talentless opera singer, and you see a scene where she's performing this aria, and it's kind of a famous cinematic thing because the camera pans up all the way up the theater, and then you see in the flies, I guess, of the theater, some theater techs like holding their nose and rolling their eyes because she is not a good singer. In fact, I don't think the person that sings it in the movie is credited. It's not the actress. It's someone else. And it's just like someone making a not very good sound. Um, but it's beautiful music. Um, mm. It's too bad. There's not a whole opera of it. Um, yeah. Bernard Herrmann wrote one opera of Wuthering Heights and did not write the rest of Salambo, which is this one. This is from. And this is sung by. Kiri Takanawa, um, a wonderful lyric soprano who became sort of famous as far as opera singers did in, in the late 20th century. Um, she's on the soundtrack for a room with a view and, uh, you know, also to opera singers beloved. It's not like she's just sort of a pop figure, but she, I think was better known than a lot of opera singers. Um, do you know why she recorded this song? Um, I, I would say probably she just did a recital uh, disc that had various things on it. I'm not absolutely sure. Um, she may have done a disc of film music or something. Um, I'm not completely sure what it's from. But I can see the temptation, and I'm actually surprised more people don't record it because it's kind of great in that way that film music composers can do where it's very sweeping stuff and you know film music has a certain dramatic quality in common with opera and herman uh, knew how to make this like a showstopper so we're moving past bel canto at yeah. this point so the, the the differences in singing styles are not just about the era in which the opera was written the era in which the opera was performed but also the sort of national style yes very much there are different skills, I would say, to singing different nationalities of music just because they end up emphasizing different things. For instance, moving on to Wagner um, and German opera. And most of what we've been listening to is Italian. Yeah, we've been listening to a lot of Italian. And then that, that last one was sort of, um, you know, fake French opera by an American composer. <laughs> um, but a lot of Italian stuff. Um, and then yeah, German opera is a whole other realm and often requires a whole different kind of singer. I mean, people will do both, but I think a lot of singers are thought of as being skilled at German opera or Italian opera. And there's there's a lot sort of musicologically or music in terms of music history to say about Wagner, the the kind of big boned stuff that everyone knows or that opera fans all know is that um, he, like many Composers wanted to invent kind of a whole new kind of music drama. And in Wagner, there is this idea of Gesamtkunstwerk, meaning like an artwork that encompasses everything. It's drama, it's music, it's stagecraft, and it's all of those things. And the things that it gives a singer an opportunity to do are different. 
the orchestras are large and it is definitely, I feel like I keep saying athletic, but it's definitely an athletic act to be able to sing this and be heard. If people know anything about Wagner, they probably know of the ring. If you have a stereotype about Wagner, it's from the ring. It's where like the, the horned helmets and all that come in. It's where the Warner Brothers cartoons take their, their bit of Wagner from. It's a massive work. It's four evenings of opera, hours and hours long, each of them. An epic story from Norse mythology. So this is from earlier in the 20th century, not the time when the recordings were really kind of impossible to listen to, but a part of the century when opera singers were stars, I think in a way comparable to movie stars. Lawrence Tibbet was certainly really well known. I had a friend in college that said her grandmother would send her CDs and kind of go on about him. Um, he's, you'll see, he was a funny looking guy. He has a lot of forehead, um, but he was like a matinee idol. I think he was in movies actually. And this clip is from the end of Die Valkyra, the second night of the ring when Votan has put his, his daughter Brimhilda the Valkyrie, to sleep in a ring of fire that will protect her from anyone but a hero. Oh! 
But The Ring, while monumental, is not Wagner's only work. Here's a taste of something else. This is Leonie Riesnick, um, a great singer of the 50s through the end of the 20th century. She had a long career. She was much beloved. There are videos of her farewell on YouTube that are not of her singing. They are just very long videos of the applause and of her coming forward to the footlights and weeping and being pelted with flowers and um, people applauding extremely loudly. And I have watched parts of it because it is, I don't know, it's like a document of something important. And she sings, again, I think it's fair to say she sings some of the time out of tune. Her intonation is not tidy. Her singing in general is not tidy, but she has massively devoted fans because her singing is just from the gut and extremely dramatic. So here she is singing the character of Ortrude in Lohengrin. So, you know, Wagner is through-composed, meaning it doesn't take breaks, it doesn't have recit. And so here, for example, you're hearing what we were talking about earlier, which is applause where there's not a space for it. Belcanto, with its neat units, gives you times that you can applaud, and Wagner doesn't, but people can't help themselves. <laughs> and he probably wanted them to. Probably maybe. wanted them to. So, I mean, maybe he wanted them to sit in reverent silence. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he did, he did build an opera house in Germany that was specifically for the performance of his works. And it does feel sort of like it's a temple. And I think traditionally there is not applause at Parsifal, which is the most overtly religious of his works. But yeah, I'm sure like any composer, he wanted people to receive things enthusiastically. Yeah. And the, the recordings that are really great, I think carry out with them some sense of the physical drama that's going on on stage. Some singers can do that. But another thing for opera fans about Wagner is just the opportunity there for the performers to do, I think, a kind of acting that you would have to compare to silent film in that it's not very... Um, it's not aimed at dramatic truth of how normal people behave. It is these 
giant gestures, like in this clip, you see her kind of writhing at one of the dramatic moments in the music. It's at best just larger than life and like watching um, Louise Brooks or Falconetti or someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is, so she's she's on the floor. What's she singing in this clip and what's the context in the larger opera? I have a weird relationship with Wagner where I often listen to it as if it were concert music. I don't know the plot of Lohengrin well. Um, she is basically the character who is deceiving Elsa, who is the heroine, the usually more pure-voiced soprano. And she is she's up to no good. <laughs> um, but in this particular clip, um, I, I just sort of experience it almost um, like pure music. I don't, I, I don't know. That's great. I've seen Lohengrin in the house probably four times. The Met at some point had a production by the avant-garde director, Robert Wilson, who is wonderful and strange and does things in an extremely static way that even if you were following the drama ordinarily, you might not be able to. It's people sort of standing in these these odd poses for long periods of time. It's apparently quite difficult to sing that way, and there are bars of light moving very slowly across <laughs> the background and is very abstract. And I think it has made Lohengrin an opera that I particularly relate to as if it were not about anything except for the sound of the music. Huh, okay, okay. <laughs> I wish there were a clip on here to show you of that. It sort of seems like there are waves of fashion maybe isn't the most flattering way to put it, but like waves of fashion in the way that operas are staged. Are there sort of waves of fashion and singing in the same way? It's hard to know in a way because the recording era goes back to about 1900 and recordings from early in the era. It's really hard to know what the singers sound like. There are acoustic era recordings, some of them on cylinders that are more noise than they are signal. And even as you move up into less primitive kinds of recording, you had a singer and a very reduced orchestra crowded around a horn to record it. And so I think it's not probably an accurate representation of what people sounded like. Now, you will hear a certain school of opera fans in the present who like to moan about how it is a fallen art and nobody can sing like people used to sing. <laughs> I think they're kind of dedicated to not enjoying things. I think they enjoy things by not enjoying them. But certainly you can hear differences. There are big stylistic differences if you listen to early recordings and more modern ones. Things will fall out of fashion. People in the early recording era used a lot of portamento, which is to say they would slide from one note to another. Um, especially if mm -hmm. you're going up for a high note, you might really slide up to it. that now would be considered bad singing, or at least stylistically really weird singing. Mm. But yeah, the, the staging really is something that has changed in ways that has been challenging sometimes to audiences because companies don't want to put on exactly the same thing over and over again. Probably audiences on some level don't want to see exactly the same thing over and over again. And singers probably don't want to do it exactly the same. And so you do get in the last maybe 50 years, stagings that take more liberties with what is explicitly expressed in the libretto. And 
especially I would say in German houses, they can be very radical about what they do mm. and audiences love it or hate it. And in German houses, if you listen to recordings from them, people will sometimes make it very clear if they hate it. One thing about the, the Robert Wilson production of Lohengrin that I was talking about a minute ago, even though the Met tends to be a pretty polite house, when it premiered, people loathed it and were very loud about it. And it grew to be, I think, kind of a beloved production. But then the current director of the Met brought in a lot of directors who he thought would sort of enliven things that had become ossified. And so he got rid of some beloved, very old-fashioned productions. And I heard just hilarious things at the Opera House. I heard fights between people. I heard an older couple... Well, okay, so there was a production of Tosca that everyone loved. It was by Franco Zeffirelli, the Italian movie director who does everything very traditionally um, and very opulently. So they had a very traditional production, and it was beautiful. I'm not dismissing people's love of it. They decided to do a new one. They got an, uh, I wouldn't say an avant-garde director, but a director who wasn't afraid to do what he wanted with things. And he made a new production of Tosca. And at the end of an opening night, there will be curtain calls for the singers, and then there will be curtain calls where the production team comes out. And the production team came out, and people booed louder than I've ever heard an audience boo, because they were very upset about it. And the young guy sitting next to me was shushing the booing of the older people in front of me. Mm -hmm. And the older people said, why don't you go back to Greenwich Village where you're from? Um, kind of a really hilariously dated insult. <laughs> And the young people said something like, you know, go back to Long Island or some equally not, not, not very substantial rebuke. <laughs> that honestly sounds sort of wonderful. I mean, the, the it was there's so much feeling rather than just staying away because you heard something bad about it or whatever, like going to something that you think you might hate, mm. hating it and, and hating it enough that you're just, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that you're willing to you know, perhaps come to blows with your teammates. <laughs> that's, that's kind of exciting. I'm glad I was there. Like I personally would never boo a singer for sure because it's hard work and sometimes people fail and sometimes they succeed. I probably would also never boo a production team, but something about, I mean, just what you're saying, just the, the fact that people were really, really responding to this was like, it was funny and also like exciting to be there. The funny thing that happened after that is they actually had to hire someone to do a new production of Tosca that's more traditional because the audience for works like that apparently just does not want to see things that are, I don't want to condescendingly say challenging, but they don't want to see things that mess with what they're used to. Mm. Yeah. Huh. So you can get weird with stuff that is less... Yeah. Beloved? It's hard less... to say. I think that there are operas that attract more traditionalist audiences. They did a production of La Sonambula, which is not done very often. It's done at SETI. It's that bel canto with all kinds of beautiful ornamental singing. And to be fair, the production felt, and I'm really not a traditionalist, but at times the production felt a little bit disrespectful. <laughs> um, and people were, again, furious about it. And I think the thing is, like, nobody puts that opera on very much in the U.S. And people are like, here's my opportunity to go see this kind of, this thing that's not going to be upsetting in any way. And it made them feel insulted that it hadn't been done in a way that they could recognize. Is it mostly the staging that people are messing with? Like, if you went in and closed your eyes, would you be able to say, oh, this is, like, 
something radical that's been done with this? No, because they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna change the music or the text. They changed the staging in a way sometimes that contradicts the text. Now, a lot of people, including me, would say, well, opera is a collaboration and an inter- interpretation, and there are always going to be issues like this. There is not some pure thing that you're supposed to be putting on the stage. You can't. There's a thing on the page that tells you some of what you need to know, but it's a dramatic art. Things are going to happen on stage, and some of it is interpretation. It's a, it's necessary. It's It has to be that way. But people can disagree over how much of that is, um, how much there is that's there that you should leave alone. So some beloved operas have aspects that we would today consider problematic for reasons of racism or anti-Semitism or misogyny. What's to be done there? I feel like that is a whole problem that is very much in the process of being resolved because there is stuff, Madame Butterfly is a great example. It is Orientalist in a very plain, straightforward way. Like the text per se is hard not to be offended by. You may look at it as this is an expression of how people thought about things then, but there is stuff there that people may have a really valid reason for not wanting to see presented as it is. And I think that directors really do try to address some of that now. They try and present things in a way that is thoughtful. They try and present things in a way that is challenging to a narrative that isn't acceptable to a lot of people anymore, but they run up against this conflict of a certain kind of audiences don't want things changed. And it's not straightforward. I don't think it's a matter of one approach or the other being right or wrong. There are things that I think are an easy call. Aida was traditionally done in blackface. It's a real easy call to not do that. I think we can all feel pretty good about not doing that. But there are other things where the text itself has problems that you're not going to find necessarily an easy way to make more palatable. In Madama Butterfly, which is based on a stage play that was popular, the American officer Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton goes to Japan and effectively purchases a young wife, Cho Cho-san, also known as Madame Butterfly, and discards her. And she is faithful to the end. She has a child by him. She thinks he's coming home. And eventually she kills herself. Um, it's awful. There are many ways to see that awfulness. Like, can we watch Madame Butterfly and cry at it because it is about a tragic love story? Can we watch it and cry at it because it's about horrible ways that people related to each other, sometimes in another era, some of that carrying forward to now? It's really complicated. Um, And I don't know what you could do to Madame Butterfly to make it a text that is critical of these things that are really buried in the work itself. And, you know, that's the job of the director. They can they can try and do that if they want to. But it's risky. And it may not succeed just because some works date in a way that I think you can't necessarily view them anymore. For sure. And that's there's only so far that a product of its time right. can go, you know. And sometimes it's not about like, well, I like this thing, but I need to acknowledge the problem. Sometimes it's about 
I don't actually like this thing anymore. Like I can't, it's not always about a conflicted. Do you listen to, um, you must remember this podcast about old movies. Yeah. 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 Um, she's doing a season about uh, song of the South mm. and she addresses right away that people say, well, yeah, it's offensive, but it's just a product of its time. And I admit going in, I thought, yeah, it's a product of its time. But she's like, no, people were really protesting it at the time. Like, it's it's not something that people thought was fine when it was made. Mm. What's the opera scene like in Japan? Does anybody perform Madame Butterfly? There is an active opera scene in Japan, and I don't know the answer to that. I looked it up real quick, and indeed, the new National Theatre Tokyo produced Madama Butterfly in 2019, with Japanese soprano Sato Yasuko in the title role. I'd love to know how straight they played it. I know that U.S. companies, in an attempt to at least not include the sin of Yellowface in their productions that hire Asian sopranos to sing Madame Butterfly, but I also feel like I've seen productions where they hire Chinese sopranos to sing Madame Butterfly, who's Japanese. And there's not necessarily anything inherently Japanese about it at all. Yeah, no, it was it was written by what David Belasco and viewed by white audiences, and then set to an Italian text by an Italian composer and watched by people of many nationalities. But no, there's not very much Japanese about it. If anything, this is understating Madama Butterfly's remove from the real Japan. The stage play by David Belasco, an American playwright, was based on a short story by another American whose sister had been to Japan, and on a novel by a French naval officer who actually did, in real life, purchase the services of a temporary Japanese wife while stationed in Nagasaki for a couple of months. Turandot, set in China, is an even longer telephone game. An Italian opera, based on a German play, based on an Italian play, based on a French interpretation of a Persian story about a Russian princess named Turkish Daughter, who was based on a real princess who was Mongolian. One wishes that Puccini had been into science fiction instead, or that he'd been a crappy composer, because then these works would have been long forgotten, along with their Orientalism, their racism, their misogyny, and their preposterous plots. But the music is gorgeous, and for many people, this makes his operas hard to give up. And interestingly, the closest relationship that they have to the actual cultures where they're set is in the music. Puccini, in his two Orientalist operas, would try and add sort of musicological colorings to what he was writing. There is a an actual Chinese folk tune in Turandot. So it's not that there's no effort there, but he's an Italian composer with no no skin in the game. So, the folk song in question is Mo Li Hua, Jasmine Flower, a very popular song within China that's widely used as a symbol of China. It's been played at the Olympics, it played at the handover ceremonies when Macau and Hong Kong were transferred back to Chinese rule, Kenny G has covered it, Celine Dion did it on Chinese state television with a famous Chinese soprano and 100 ballerinas. It was also played by pro-democracy protesters in 2011, which led to that classic totalitarian state contradiction, a beloved national symbol, being censored by the national government. It appears throughout Turandot as a melodic theme for the princess. Puccini heard it from a music box given to him by an Italian diplomat returning from China. 
Here it's sung by a chorus of children in the first act. You can hear it's exactly the same. Yeah. People have their own feelings about whether musical borrowings are tribute or appropriation, but he lifted things pretty straight. I think the line on it a lot of the time is that, sure, cultures borrow from each other, but there may be additional history there that makes it a more complicated issue than that. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think some borrowing is done some borrowing is done with it with the feeling that nobody is looking back. Uh-huh. And maybe if they were, or you thought they were, you would do it differently, which is a good indication that, you know, maybe you should do it differently. <laughs> yeah. It's funny getting into the 20th century with Puccini because it's still, it's not music that is difficult at all. In fact, I think it's very accessible. Music in the 20th century went plenty of other directions, but talking about Puccini is also a way to talk about Collis because as a fan rather than a scholar of opera, I can't talk about it without talking about Collis. That being Maria Collis, the soprano of mostly the 1950s, who, if you ask really most opera fans, is kind of the most important singer. Maybe that's exaggerating, but she's very important to a lot of people, and it's difficult really to even say why. She was very skilled in many ways, but she also burnt out very quickly. Her career was not long. There are a lot of recordings where she has a big wobble in her voice that are not terrifically enjoyable to listen to, but she also is somehow able more than most other singers on record to portray drama through her voice. She sang all over the world. She sang at the Met. She kind of got into a conflict with uh, Rudolf Bing, who ran, ran the Met at the time, and he fired her. It was a newspaper story. It was, I think, on the front page of the Times. Like, it was a big deal. And she did eventually return to the Met. And I thought I would play a clip from that, though she's kind of in diminished vocal form. But it is another of these things to me where the musical event that is happening is more than the sum of the parts. There's a lot of realness there, and there's also an audience that loves her and has felt bereft of her and is going wild. That is not a break for applause, obviously. That's just where people can't fucking control themselves. She hasn't sung yet, by the way.
this again is a recording that for a long time was I, I will say that I I went into a music store in Boston with my friend Kathy and was looking through the racks of pirated looking CDs and said I don't think this exists <laughs> when I found it because <laughs> it's not a broadcast from the Met. Someone had a recorder in there somehow and I saw it and was very excited and it's a recording that I love even though it's in shitty sound. Yeah. There's kind of a big division of opera listeners who are looking for art and opera listeners who are looking for more of a sporting event. And so high notes are always a big deal or being able to sing for 13 seconds is always a big deal. And there's another famous college recording that has a high note that most people don't sing because it's not a note available to most people that have the right shape of voice to sing Aida. Yeah, and it seems kind of spontaneous. It seems like perhaps she wasn't planning to do it and then realized she could and went with it. And, you know, one of the things that people find valuable about her is an air that she is somehow making up the music as she goes along. We know that it's a text that's been around for 100 years, but there's something spontaneous about it a lot of the time. And even on record, there's there's relatively little um, film footage of Collis. No complete opera performance. But people who adore her feel that there's something so full in her dramatic portrayal that you're somehow hearing the whole thing anyway. Let's talk about vibrato. <laughs> Okay. I feel like that's the quality that most non-opera listeners associate most deeply with opera. Yeah, that is true. And I think it's one of the things that people don't like about operatic singing. Um, it's a strong taste, for sure. It's it's salty licorice. It's not just like <laughs> a little bit of, of, it's not salted caramel, you know? Right. I think it sounds pretentious to people. And if people are making fun of opera, they'll sing with a big wobbly vibrato. And apparently it is off-putting. It's funny for me because it's just sort of part of the sound of singing. And it is tricky because as voices age, the vibrato is not as consistent. And you'll hear singers like Collis in the late part of her career or famously Gwyneth Jones, who was a very beloved singer, but who in 
many, many of her recordings has that like flapping around sound that most people don't like. Just the same, outside of early music, you will not hear any opera singers sing without it. Yeah. How would we know that there wasn't any in early music? I have wondered about that, and I don't know. Um, If you listen to these recordings that I talked about a while back um, from, say, before 1950, I think people would sing the same style, whether they were singing Handel or Puccini. In the 90s, when the historically informed performance practice movement started, somebody read some text that convinced them that there was much less vibrato. I don't really know. And you do when you are, I know from playing some early music, you have to develop ways of phrasing, of shaping a phrase differently if you don't have vibrato. Like if you're playing a bowed instrument and you're drawing the string across for a long sustained note and there's nothing going on, like no change of speed with the bow or anything, it's going to sound flat and gross. Mm. In modern performance practice, the way around that is that there's vibrato. It exists in a lot of kinds of singing, but in the context of opera, I'm not a vocal technician of any sort, but I believe a voice teacher would tell you that it is a healthy part of singing and probably necessary for being heard. Pitch variants can help you be heard when you are singing over something very loud. Mm. So Turandot, the opera that we played a little bit of the Chinese folk tune for, has a scene where... Turnadot, the title character, is singing against a chorus of women, and everyone is singing a high C. There was some singer, and I can't remember who it was, that said, the way to be heard in doing that is to sing it very slightly sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I believe that, but I think also, like, vibrato can differentiate your voice from what's going on around it. Yeah, that's Gana Dimitrova. Um, she's just great. <laughs> <laughs> I only heard her live once and went backstage afterwards and gave her some very crappy-looking flowers and said in my best Bulgarian, that was very beautiful. And she laughed and stroked my cheek, and I never let, never washed it again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from Turned Out, which is, has something to offend everyone. It is offensive as Orientalism. It is offensive as sexism. It's a mess. And it's unfinished people have written completions for it which you'll usually hear one particular one if you go to the opera and it's um, in this one way of looking at it it's the end of romantic opera even though it is from the 1920s there is stuff that's happening by the 1920s that sounds much more modern i can um i can cue up something from strauss that will sound like from a whole different world than this yeah let's do that 
This is from 1919. This is Strauss's Die Frau in The Woman Without a Shadow. It's a collaboration with the librettist, uh, which is to say the, the writer, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, who was a poet and playwright. They collaborated a number of times. This one is, it's one of those operas that just doesn't make much sense. The libretto is crazy. There's a portion of it where the fish that are frying in the pan start singing with the voices of unborn children or some utter what the fuck. <laughs> um, the libretto is very strange, but just the same. It's glorious music with a lot of, um, well, I think in a way it'll show sort of more what was really going on at that point in what we would say was early modernism if we were talking about certain art forms. So, you know, it does sort of more of what you would expect from early 20th century music. 
it modulates a lot, sometimes in unexpected ways. It is, I think, music that we would all find kind of tough to digest if we weren't used to a lot of stuff that had happened since. Like, film music makes Strauss sound very normal. Yeah. But there's a lot in it that was radical. Um, They also wrote an operatic setting of Electra that is... It's challenging in some ways. People find it like a a forbidding work. Um, And it's also one of those very tough things where you have to be an extremely large voice singer to make it through it. And there's maybe one person every 25 years that can really sing it like as it should be sung. Does that mean that you only hear it once every 25 years or sometimes you just have no as it not should be sung? It's <laughs> it's reasonably standard rep. You know, it's not something that companies put on all the time because I think doing German opera in general is a money loser. Mm. Um, is Wagner an exception to that? The Ring is an exception to that. If you put mm. The Ring on, Ring Fanatics will probably buy all the tickets. But Electra is put on reasonably frequently, and it should be. Uh, just because someone may not be fully able to do all the things in the role is not a reason not to do it. And there are probably things to enjoy in lots of performances that get done, even if I, in my great wisdom, would term them not fully up to the standard of what a lecture should be. But, you know, also fortunately, we're in an era right now where there's someone who is extremely capable of the role who, because of that, is singing it all over. <laughs> um, Christine Garkey, who sang it here. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, she's the whole thing. And it's not that she has the most enormous voice of anyone, um, which is one thing that is great in Electra. But when I hear her sing music from Electra, I feel as if I understood German, which I largely don't. Because <laughs> 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 she just, you know, she gets the role and is, is has that ability to convey it. It's a long time to sit still and listen to people sing if you don't feel like there's anything going on. And it's good now that we do have super titles. Like for... Much of the 20th century, you would go to the opera, and if you didn't know it and didn't know the language, you might be at sea the whole time. And now, your only limitation is whether you want to be watching what's going on in front of you or looking at the text. Supertitles, or surtitles, in an opera house work like subtitles in a film. The words being sung on stage are translated into the local language and projected onto a flat surface above or to the side of the stage. They were invented in the early 80s by the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto, and they've been almost universally adopted in the last couple decades, although they're not universally loved. Many spectators like them. They're often used in productions that are sung in the local language because they make it so much easier to understand what's going on on stage in more detail than you might remember even if you study the libretto. The great soprano Beverly Sills said she learned something about La Boheme, which she performed in, from watching it with supertitles. They're less liked by some directors who often say they're distracting or look bad, and of course there are always people who think that audiences should do their homework instead. The Met in New York has seatback titles, like the movie screens in an airplane, and audience members can turn them off individually. Wagner's Opera House in Bayreuth, Germany does not have titles at all. So, to bring us up to date-ish... we dipped one toe into the latter half of the 20th century. This is from Nixon in China, an opera by minimalist composer John Adams that premiered in 1987. The soloist is soprano Trudy Ellen Craney, who originated the role of Madame Mao, and if you're reading your supertitles, you might notice it's sung in English. 
So that's from Nixon in China. Yeah. Um, what is it exactly about that that makes it minimalist? Um, minimalism, and I think probably minimalist composers don't entirely love the term, but it refers to the tendency to repeat phrases. And to be fair, a lot of Baroque music is really repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this and Steve Reich and Philip Glass, who all get called minimalists, there's a lot of repetition and the changes are sort of slow in those repetitions. If you mention Philip Glass, people will inevitably make a joke that kind of makes me insane where they'll say, oh, Philip Glass, Philip Glass, Philip Glass or something because <laughs> <laughs> there are there are basic units. There are, you know, chords that happen over and over again and sort of the musical phrases can be very slow to develop. And this is, I would say, kind of the most the most successful minimalist opera. It's been revived a certain amount. I think it's, you know, probably the best opera of the last whatever, let's say 50 years. It has kind of the whole thing. Like it has a libretto that is of historical interest and that was written by Alice Goodman, who was a poet. And it was directed by Peter Sellers, who was kind of a, uh, not the actor Peter Sellers, obviously, but um, was sort of an enfant terrible of the theater scene that did sometimes provocative, interesting stagings of things. The premiere of it was a big deal, and I think rightly so, because um, there's just there's a great deal there to love. Mm. So at this point, I asked Greg, what next? If you've heard something in this show that intrigued you, what would he suggest as a way to keep exploring? I hate to rely on tech as the answer. It makes me sad. But I think probably the easiest thing to do is there are millions of clips on YouTube and you can actually watch performances so that you're not just listening to a recording of something you may or may not understand. To make up for having recommended a tech solution, I will also say that we are living in an era when... <laughs> Records often cost a dollar, so if you get a turntable, you can buy so many records and try out things with basically zero commitment. You know, I got a turntable after not having one for a long time ago. I got one probably six years ago, and I'm just constantly buying recordings of stuff so that you can see, hmm, well, here is an opera by whoever that I don't know, or here's a performance by this singer that I love that I didn't know existed. And you can basically for the less than the price of a cup of coffee, you can put it on, see if you love it and donate it back. If you don't having made that caveat, YouTube is great because it's kind of as close as you can come to going to a performance without sinking in the considerable sum of money. And you can also be in your living room and watch it and not feel like you need to know some rules about when to applaud or not. I think that that kind of stuff shouldn't stop people from going, but it does. And so like watching some clips can tell you what era of music you like. There will be plenty of clips of singers who are active now. So you can sort of see if there are people that you want to make a special effort to see. People sometimes say to me, what should I listen to if I want to love opera? And I kind of want to say, you might not love opera. You can feel free to not love opera. <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> don't. Um, but there's also a fair amount of variety within it. So unless you're just purely turned off by the style of singing that's common for a lot of it, it's worth exploring. 
Yeah. Would you say that the, I don't know, would you say that the live experience is the center of it? Is, is, is the heart of the thing? Yeah, I certainly would never, ever want to be bound to sitting at home and listening to recordings. And so here we are at the end of the summer of 2020, sitting at home, listening to recordings. Um, not the sitting at home part. That is nice. But um, I think if you only like singers from the past, you are denying yourself a great part of the experience. And a few months or a thousand years after we had this conversation in December of 2019, I think we can all agree that we miss the great part of the experience. Do you remember that we used to intentionally jam ourselves in a big room with hundreds of strangers to listen to the same vibrations and breathe the same air? It's hard to even fathom. I can't remember why I didn't go every single night when I could. For the people who make opera, it's even harder. Opera has this air of big money around it, and that's not wrong, but it's not making hardly anybody rich. Even before COVID, most opera performers were dealing with expensive professional education, undercompensation, unreliable employment, cut budgets, shortened schedules, companies shutting down, and now the loss of the one thing that was the reason everyone put up with everything else. In some places in the world, with lower COVID levels and better practices than the U.S., we're now seeing tentative forays into modified performances, but it's hard. Indoors is a very bad idea for respiratory contagion. Outdoors is terrible for performance acoustics. And in an art form where you sometimes have more than 100 people just making the music, it gets risky before you even have an audience. You can live stream, but if you want to sound good enough to charge for tickets, it's technically complex and can cost a lot of money, which companies may or may not have right now. Making music together over the internet is not as much of a thing as people like to make it seem. In order to play music with someone, you need to hear each other in more or less real time. The delay on my voice right now is 50 milliseconds, which is a pretty decent round-trip internet connection and total crap for playing together. Those cute recordings that everybody is making with all the choir members in their little boxes singing along to their earbuds are made in pieces with some sort of sync track and assembled after the fact. Sorry. I know this, and I still get excited every time I see one of those, like, maybe somebody's figured it out. But the problem is physics, and we still have that. There is an upside to this new landscape in terms of audience accessibility. A lot of these streaming broadcasts are free, all of them are cheaper than a ticket to the Met, and none of them requires you to physically spend hours in a theater in New York or Milan. If we ever get back to normal, let's keep doing that. There are also some people composing for our new distant reality, which could get interesting. Shout out to my 11-year-old niece who is in a Zoom musical. We'll probably see more of the fruits of that in due time when they will probably sadly still be relevant. But ultimately, we just don't know enough yet. Currently, it only seems slightly hyperbolic to say, no more singing together or we die. It's hard to even think about sometimes because it is so sad. At our recording session, we ended the show with the Polish contralto Eva Podlesz singing Gluck. I hate to miss that entirely, so it's in the show playlist and I encourage you to check it out. But while I was editing during the pandemic, Greg emailed me what he called the number one most consoling thing I know for very bad days. It's American mezzo-soprano Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson singing from Handel's Theodora. It's not a happy story. Theodora dies. Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson died too young as well. Handel's dead. And yet, there's something in this recording. Greg called it that rare lit-from-within thing. It takes in the vast sadness of the universe and somehow finds peace, grace, and joy. As we 
This has been episode six of Every Record Ever Recorded, a field guide to the music of Earth. I'm Hannah, and my guest today was Greg Fried with an introduction to opera. Great thanks to musical consultants and steadfast opera friends, John Taylor, Greg Block, James Jordan, Jonathan Farantelli, Janet Clough, and Mario Brazzoni. Check the show's website at everyrecordeverrecorded.com for the extended gatefold LP box set version of the show notes, a streamable playlist of everything we heard today, plus much, much more, and an email list to be the first to hear about new episodes of the show, which you can also subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or however you listen to this sort of thing. This episode, about the biggest, most dramatic feelings in the world, can only be dedicated to my great love and number one podcast supporter, my husband, Walter. Big love as well to our friend Janet, who took both of us to see Don Carlo at San Francisco Opera as a wedding present. It's like four hours long and about the Spanish Inquisition? Highly recommended as a starter opera. I mean it. Do come back for the next episode of this show, when I'll be talking to California newspaper man Robert E. Price about Bakersfield Country. And hey... Thank you for listening. <laughs>